Now you can show your support for Inside MusicCast by making a donation at InsideMusicCast.com. Your donation will help us to continue producing future episodes of Inside MusicCast and keep Inside MusicCast radio streaming 24-7. You can also receive special Inside MusicCast merch, such as t-shirts, masks, stickers, and coasters for your support at various levels. Find out more at InsideMusicCast.com. From all of us at Inside MusicCast, thank you for your support. You seldom catch Marcus Miller without his signature fedora hat. He wears them at every gig and on every stage. But the symbolism is telling, as his long career has also allowed him to wear many musical hats, not only as a premier first-call bassist, but also as a producer, arranger, multi-instrumentalist, film and jazz composer, and even a bass clarinet player. Throughout his illustrious career, Miller has played and shared the stage with greats such as Miles Davis, David Sanborn, Eric Clapton, Herbie Hancock, Luther Vandross, Aretha Franklin, Bob James, Joe Sample, Grover Washington, Donald Fagan, and many others who are at the top of the music chain. We're glad to finally welcome Marcus Miller to Inside Music Guest. Hey, Marcus, thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's nice to be here. How are you guys doing? We're doing great. Real well. Hey, before I forget, I want to let you know that... Uh, it was late in 2019 that me and my daughter, she's she's older, um, we uh, drove to St. Louis and we saw mm. you and Bob James and David Sanborn uh, oh, play wow. the Double Vision, the complete um, show. You guys played uh, the whole album in its entirety. And, yeah, uh, we played the whole album. That's right. That was a great show because Billy Kilson was hanging in there and, and Larry Braggs, uh, who's amazing right. too. Um, yeah, man. What a little wow. venue. That was so nice. Um, how, how did the whole tour, uh, you know, that the Double Vision tour, was that one of the last tours that you guys actually were on the road by, just by chance? Yeah. I mean, we didn't know it at the time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what happened was um, I host these uh, jazz cruises every year, early in the year, like end of January, sure. beginning of February. Never thought I'd be hosting jazz cruises. <laughs> but um <laughs> that's funny <laughs> i kind of i kind of slid into it you know um my buddy uh you know one of my best friends his name was wayman tisdale he played professional Whoa. basketball for of the course for yeah. the pacers and the kings and the and the uh phoenix sun right but he was a closet musician a closet bass player and oh, yeah after his pro career he actually went 100 percent into the music world and was making records and he was the host of this jazz cruise Really, and uh, every once in a while, I would stow away on the boat and just hang out with him and 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 just have a good time. Wow. Anyway, unfortunately, Wayman passed mm-hmm. in yeah. 2009 yeah. Uh, from cancer, and the director of the uh, the cruises he said, "Look, you know, I know you're not per se a smooth jazz you know musician, but mm-hmm. you have been involved, and it would be nice if you uh, stepped in." And, uh, you know, took over for your boy. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did, man. And I ended up, um, you know, really developing beautiful relationships with all the cruisers, you know, who all remind me of my aunts and my uncles and my brothers, yeah. you know what I mean? So um, I've been doing it for a while. Anyway, you know, David Sanborn was doing some hosting on the cruise yeah. also. And one night, one, uh, one week, we had Bob James as our special guest. Cool. One night, we decided at midnight to do a special show where the three of us recreated Double Vision, the whole album. Wow. On the cruise, on like, the cruise. On the cruise, yeah. Wow. Uh, you know, a late, a late night show on sure. the cruise, exactly. And um, 
you know, for a lot of the people who love that that style of music, this was like one of their bass albums, their fundamental albums that kind of got them into it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. There's a song on that on that album that I wrote called Maputo, which was mm-hmm. the theme theme song for a lot of smooth jazz radio stations when they first started. Oh yeah. So so anyway, it went so well, you know, the idea was why don't we take this on the road, which is what we did twenty nineteen in the summer. Mm-hmm. And like you said, we had Billy Kilson on the drums and we had Larry Braggs also. Mm-hmm. And um I asked Bob if he wanted to add any other musicians. He said, No, I'd really like to do it with just, you know, the 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 four rhythm section guys and yeah. or the three rhythm section and and Sanborn. So that's what we did. It went really well. We, you know, we did the whole country. St. Louis was kind of in the middle yeah. of the tour. And it was a beautiful venue. It kind of felt like a university lecture room. Yeah, it was a beautiful I mean? little room. Yeah. But it was really nice. And the next night we played, uh, St. Louis is David Sanborn's yeah. hometown. Uh, the next night we played up at Interlochen, which is Bob James' hometown. So they were both egging the audience to uh, be more... Uh, more energetic than the other, you know what I mean? So uh, <laughs> got to be a little competition. It's pretty cool. Of course, I'm from New York, so you know I won. Exactly, you won. <laughs> <laughs> well, you uh, you mentioned uh, Wayman Tisdale a second ago. Eddie and I are here in Indianapolis, and uh, I, I remember oh, yeah. I remember going to see Wayman Tisdale play basketball quite a bit. And oh, yeah. uh, I think I worked with him before in my studio too. He came in to record something. So, yeah. Oh, sure. Not, yeah. not music, yeah, he, but um, he did like a voiceover. His number's retired at, at OU. You know, he oh. was a big star yeah. at big Indiana time, University. I'm oh, no, sorry, Oklahoma University. Excuse yep, exactly. Yeah. Hey, uh, again, we want to give a little shout out to your lovely wife, uh, Brenda, for helping us uh, set yeah. this whole thing up. She's been so accommodating. So yeah. if you just, oh, if she yeah. passes there, whatever you say, Brenda, thumbs, thumbs up. Great job. <laughs> oh, yeah. She's on me, too. She's like, do not miss this interview. I said, okay, I <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you, Brenda. Hey, Marcus, I'm gonna I'm gonna start by shaking a, an old memory, and and we at Inside Musicast we like to sort of dig in and sort of bring out some little nuggets. I recall back in 1979, I bought a new jazz album a long time ago, and it was called Brown Sugar, and it was on GRP Records. So the first question I got is, does that name of that album ring a bell? And can you tell me the artist on that? Oh yeah, I I have a radio show on Sirius XM every Sunday. Yeah, and I I played Brown Sugar last Sunday. <laughs> did you really? <laughs> oh yeah, uh, I did a trumpet player special, and the Brown Sugar is uh the debut album of Tom Brown. It That's is right. my yeah. homeboy, my homeboy from Jamaica, Queens, New York. Okay. Yeah. and uh, Tom, I mean, you know, let's see, I probably met Tom when I was 15 years old Jeez. and uh, Jamaica Queens was full of these phenomenal musicians. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I knew they were phenomenal at the time because I didn't know any other musicians, but yeah. looking back on it now, um, you know, Tom Brown is still one of the oh. most incredible trumpet players that I've known. Oh, and yeah. uh, Bernard Wright, keyboard player yes. who was in, in that community, Donald Blackman, mm-hmm. Lenny White, yeah. um, Omar Hakim, mm-hmm. uh, some some really great musicians. Billy Cobham yeah. actually uh, is from there. Jamaica Queens is pretty interesting because it was a community right there. If you land in New York at John F. Kennedy Airport, yeah. you're actually landing in Jamaica Queens. Gotcha. And yeah. uh, when you drive from the airport to Manhattan, you're driving through Jamaica. The first town you drive through I see. is Jamaica, just to let people know actually yeah. where it is. But yeah. man, it was a community that was close enough to Manhattan for all these musicians over the years to make their gigs. 
but far enough away so that the rents were reasonable. You yeah, know? exactly. So over time, man, we had John Coltrane living in Jamaica, Queens. Wow. Uh, Count Basie. Yeah. Um, mm. Like I mentioned, Billy Cobham, Lenny White. Wow. Even Duke Ellington lived in Jamaica, Queens for a while. Yeah. So uh, really, really rich history. Anyway, yeah. Tom Brown is incredible trumpet player with this gorgeous tone, big, brash, Lee Morgan, Freddie Hubbard mm-hmm. type of sound. And um, George Benson had a club that he had bought, and he let his ex-manager, Jimmy Boyd, run the club. And it was in Harlem, 145th Street and Broadway. Uh-huh. And George encouraged all the you know, the talented young musicians who wanted a place to hang out and jam and do gigs to come up to the club. So we'd all pile in a car together from Jamaica, Queens, mm-hmm. and we'd drive up, uptown to Harlem and, uh, you know, play gigs and jam at this the club. It was called, called of course, the Breezen Lounge, mm-hmm. Breezen being the name of sure, George's first, like, right. really, right, right. really big album. Anyway, um, the word started getting out, and music executives started coming uptown to 145th Street to check out these jam sessions and Dave Goosen and Larry Rosen, who had a GRP records, which mm-hmm. was being distributed through Arista records at the time they came up and they heard Tom Brown and they said, Oh man, we want to sign you. Yeah. So, um, they booked the session, you know, a couple of months later and Tom walked in the door with all these teenagers from Jamaica, Queens, you know, <laughs> so it was Bernard Wright and, and myself and, and, uh, Omar Hakim. It was, it was great. Anyway, the result of that first session was Brown Sugar. Yeah, and, uh, okay. Really nice album. You know, the reason I bought that record, you know, initially was solely because of Dave Grusin, and but you know, Michael Brecker was on it, and uh, who we recently interviewed, um, Rick. Yeah, you know, yeah. um, but I was really curious about Tom Brown. I really wanted to know, but I was really surprised later on, and when I read the liner notes and everything, that you not only played bass on the album, but you wrote a couple tracks. And here's the oh, thing. Oh, yeah, like, we were homies, you know yeah. what I mean? So, Tom, we'd all gather, uh, I think, at Tom's house, and yeah. we'd all get in the same car <laughs> and drive out to Manhattan to do the session, and Tom would collect tunes from from me, from Bernard Wright, you know? Yeah. And, you know, he was just coming on the scene at the time. Tom always had two loves. He was an aviator. He was an airline a pilot. Really? And he was trained as a pilot. Gosh, um, okay. And he played the trumpet kind of as his hobby. But I never he was do that. <laughs> badass, you know what I mean? Holy so cow. He did Brown Sugar, and like you said, it was produced by Dave Grusin. That's how I met Dave Grusin. That's really how I ended up on all those GRP records there you go. from yeah. that point on, you know. And then um, Tom did a second album called Love Approach. And if you look at the album cover, Tom is sitting there in a Cessna two-engine plane that he uh, flew to the photo shoot, <laughs> you know. And... <laughs> He had this one song that was like this funky song that he developed with Bernard Wright, and they called it Funkin' for Jamaica. Uh-huh. And up at Breeze and Lounge, we had met this singer named Tony Smith, who was an incredible vocalist who sounded eerily like Shaka Khan. They oh, called her in, uh, put lyrics and sing to the Jamaica funk, and the thing just went like bananas. Man. It was like a number one R&B song. Yeah. And to this day, it's a classic. And... um you know, Tom's career just kind of went to a, a different place because it's one thing to be like a jazz trumpeter. It's another thing to have Jamaica funk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did that. He did a couple of albums, but eventually, you know, I think, I'm not sure, you know, because we never really talked about it, but I think, you know, the uh, uncertainties of the music business versus 
what he could do as an airline pilot because eventually Tom was married. He had a couple of kids. I think he decided, you know what, I'm going to fly for U.S. Air. <laughs> yeah. And he flew for U.S. Air for at least 30 years. Wow. Um, Look at that. From what I hear, maybe in the last 10 years, he's just started to get back on the scene and do gigs. Oh, wow. But, uh, that's cool. But that's Tom Brown, incredible musician. What a story, man. We're going to have to get him on the show and talk about this stuff, you know? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I'll tell you, he, you guys familiar with Woody Shaw? Yeah, yeah. Woody Shaw is like, you know, you have Clifford Brown, you got mm-hmm. Lee Morgan, you got Freddie Hubbard, mm-hmm. yeah. and then basically Woody Shaw is next in line in yeah. terms of the, the trumpet players right. who are just big sound, incredible technique. Yeah. And at the same time that Tom was recording those GRP albums, he was going to the Village Vanguard in, in Greenwich Village, the famous Village Vanguard Jazz Club, yep. and sitting in with Woody. Mm. And, you know, Tom told me that the first time he sat in Woody said, man, I'm not hearing it, you know, because jazz musicians, they don't miss words, you know. Right, right. Tom, said, <laughs> Tom said he came back two weeks later blazing it. Woody said, okay, okay, I hear it now, I hear it. <laughs> <laughs> I hear it, man, I hear, no, it. I hear it. now, I hear it loud and clear. So Tom was really, really incredible. I mean, Whitten Marsalis, after Whitten Marsalis about Tom Brown, wow. he'll tell you that he was, he was really good. Wow. Amazing. Uh, you know, we've, we've interviewed a lot of great musicians over the year that have, you know, worked with great artists and played on, you know, of course, legendary albums. And your experiences are, are obviously the same, but uh, we're curious about one album that you played on in 1982, a uh, classic album, a lot of people's Desert Island, you know, classics, yeah, yeah. Donald Fagan's Nightfly. Nightfly. And, uh, you know, I'm sure our, our Lanternos geeks out there would know that you played on Maxine and, and The Nightfly and, and The Goodbye Look. And we're curious about your take on working with uh, Donald Fagan and how you got the call to be, you know, one of the contributors on this album. Well, you know, um, I've been a Steely Dan fan from, from Asia. Mm-hmm. You know? yep. I, I guess I liked reeling in the years, but I was too young and didn't know who it was singing. <laughs> it was Nobody song, did. Song on the radio, you know what I mean? But... Um, Asia came out, you know, when yeah. I was old enough to know what was going on and appreciate mm-hmm. that record and uh right. and Gaucho after that. Yeah, sure. Great record. So um you know, I had started to do studio work probably the end of the seventies and so inevitably I'd hear stories from musicians who worked on one of those albums yeah. telling me how many takes they did of every song and how um meticulous Donald Fagan and Walter Becker were when they're making their albums, along with their producer Gary Klein, right? Sure. And so, Gary Katz. Gary um, Katz, yeah. One day I get a call. Donald Fagan needs you at Sound Ideas Studios. I think that was the studio. Um, it was next door to Studio Fifty Four. Put it that way. Okay. Yeah, down in the basement, and uh, so people told me, "Hey, man, get ready." Because <laughs> you're going in there, you might never come out. You know? so, uh, you're going deep, man. So I, I went in, and, and it was Donald and Gary Gary Klein. Uh, they just needed me to overdub the bass. Yeah, you, know? you mean they you mean a, Gary Katz? I'm sorry, not Gary Klein. Yes, Gary Katz. Klein is my my landlord here at my studio. Okay? <laughs> not that Gary. Come on, Marcus. Shout out, shout out to Gary Klein. There you go. Uh, uh, but Gary Katz, excuse me. Yeah, so anyway, Gary Katz. There we go. There you and, go. Uh, and Gary Katz was uh, was there with Donald Fagan, and and they asked me to overdub bass to a few songs. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it was weird because I was, you know, I had packed a lunch. You know what I mean? But... Um, he only had me play each song 
twice. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Um, and then I asked them to, can you put me, can you drop me in on the bridge of this one? Because I got an idea, you know what I mean? I added mm-hmm. something different, uh-huh. you know what I mean? But it was, um, and the songs were just really interesting and beautiful. And the experience was beautiful. He also said, I want you to try one song. And it was, uh, I G Y. And I G Y was a, was a shuffle. Yeah. Right. You know what I mean? And yeah. these are the days when I'm recording with Luther Vandross. So, I went into a slapping and popping shuffle, mm-hmm. <laughs> and Fagin was. I was I was playing Fagin was grooving, moving his head left to right, you know. <laughs> and then uh, after I finished, he goes, "That's great, way too exciting for my blood." <laughs> <laughs> Is that what he said? That's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he was he was partying while I was playing it, and oh, then. Yeah. Uh, and then at the end, he said, yeah, nah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you listen to Luther Vandross, he's uh, having a party, mm-hmm. also a shuffle. Yeah. This is recorded at the same time. You could probably imagine where I was coming from yeah. on that track. But the other ones, uh, I used more restraint and okay. uh, made it onto the album. Hey, you've recorded 13 solo albums, or right around there, and not counting your live or albums or the collaborations. Um, but over the years, how have you approached your session work and your solo work? And, I mean, how do you balance that? There's so different types of approaches, you know? Yeah, well, you know, the big challenge for people who start off as studio musicians, and I'm talking about musicians and singers, mm-hmm. is um, the talent that you have to have to be a successful studio musician is you have to read music well because nobody wants to spend the time waiting for you to learn the the piece by ear. And you have to be able to be a chameleon. You know, as a studio musician in New York in the early 80s, man, I was on funk records, soul records, jazz records, country records, reggae records, pop records. You know, I'd, I'd be in one day, I'd be with Carly Simon, and then I'd be with George Benson. You know, it was just yeah. like a, it was that kind of life and that kind of skill that you had to have, yeah. which is great yeah. when you're being a musician playing on everybody's record. But mm-hmm. when it's time for you to make your record, that's the exact thing that people don't want to hear. You know, mm-hmm. um, they want to hear a really specific point of view. They want you to be an artist, right? People are looking for your artistry. What is your idea? What's your identity? What's your personality? So uh, a lot of studio musicians, a lot of studio singers really can't capture that. Luther Vandross captured the hell out of it. Yeah. You know, he was he was the number one studio background singer in New oh, York. He killed it, man. For years, you know. And then uh, and I mean, we met in Roberta Flack's band when I was like 19 years old. Really? Luther was singing background. And he, he suggested, Roberta called his kid Marcus to fill in for a rehearsal. And then she asked me to do the through the gig, and that's where we got to be buddies. Yeah, and uh, you know, I remember him telling me, "Hey, man, I want to, I want to do my own thing. I want to, you know, start my own project." And, I, and I'm like, "Why? Why would you ever want to do that, man? You're the number one cat singing background in New York." He was singing for Chic, the yep. disco group Chic, all yeah. uh, freak out, and he was singing for David Bowie, for Bette Midler. He was singing on every commercial, you yep. know, for Ford trucks and Budweiser beer. He was doing well. I used to ask him to let me accompany him. To his mailbox, so I could see, so I could see the checks fall out the mailbox when he opened it up. So oh, you're right. He was the voice. He was killing it, but he had a a vision. You know, he had a sound in his head, and so we did a, you know, we did a demo 
for Luther, and he took it around. It took him a while to get it to get it picked up, but eventually he did, and it went out there, and the rest was history. Mm-hmm. But for me, I was doing all sorts of stuff. I had to figure out if I'm going to do my own album, who do I want to be as an artist? You know, people who are multi-talented have a different challenge from other people. They have to figure out what not to do. Yeah, yeah. They have to figure out a really focused thing. So, you know, I started, I think my first album maybe came out in 82, 83. I was singing a little bit. I was putting together tracks. Uh, I did another one maybe a year and a half later and didn't feel like my personality was strong enough. You know, so I stopped. And I worked on... um different projects. I work with a group called Jamaica Boys that I put together with Lenny White and Bernard Wright, two guys from Jamaica, Queens, my two brothers, you yeah. know. And then um, work with Miles on Tutu and uh, David Sanborn. I was working with a lot of people, but I was writing music and really had a, a big hand in David Sanborn and Miles' music. Well, let me let me let me stop you right there. But let's let's talk about David a little bit because you know it's amazing how you actually played on. I think it might be more than fifteen of David's solo albums. And I mean, we're talking about the classics. I mean, the albums like Hideaway, Voyeur, which is one of my favorite ones. As we speak, close up, up front, straight to the heart, and on and on. And and you know, my question to you is, you know, you work so much with David, and I saw him a few times, even playing, and even recently, a couple of years ago, he was here in the indie. Um, mm-hmm. And um, what was your chemistry like with David, and how close did you get with him? Because there was something that was working for both of you guys. Oh, yeah, man. So, you know, well, going back a few years to, like, 79, Yeah. like I told you, GRP was signing all my homeboys. Because mm-hmm. they ended up doing an album for Tom Brown. Yep. They did one for Bernard Wright. They did one for Donald Blackman. Yeah. They did one for Bobby Broom, the great guitarist who was part of our crew. So I was like, shoot, I know I'm next in line. You know what I mean? So <laughs> yeah. I started making my uh, little demos. Yeah. And I made a demo with four songs. Uh, and at the time, I had just gotten into the Saturday Night Live house band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. right. Uh, this was like the year after John Belushi died. Gotcha. Uh, and then I was also there the next year, which is when Eddie Murphy uh, showed up yeah. and kind of gave the show new life. Right. Anyway, Sanborn was in the band as well. So, yeah. uh, you know, Sanborn started doing gigs on the weekend and, and taking me out with him. And so I gave him my little cassette tape with my four demos. So I said, well, I played all the instruments on the demo. They said, well, put all your instruments, we'll send, a, we'll send a limo for you. Put all your instruments in the limo and come up to the studio. And I'm like, I live in Jamaica, Queens, in an apartment <laughs> building. I didn't even have a case for half my instruments, you know what I mean? Because they were just there for me to make demos. Yeah. So, man, I, I put, like, guitars and, and drum machines and stuff in the floor of this limo. <laughs> and we drove... An hour and 15 minutes up to White Plains, New York, which is just north of New York City. Yeah. And uh, we did the album. So that was the beginning of my relationship with Dave. And uh, uh, I began, it was so comfortable because I really got his sound in my ear. Mm-hmm. So when I was writing music, I really felt like I knew that this was going to work for Sample. You know you what? Know, it, something just crossed my mind is that, you know, you said that it's going to work for his music, but... You know, it, it's, it seems to me, you know, and I'm so familiar with all of his discography, and I memorize, you know, everything from the early albums and all, so I, I listen to it all the time. But it also is like, it's like a retrofit because you fit him and he fit you. I don't know if there's any other bass player that could have ever provided what you did 
for those albums. I mean, they were so unique that you know, you know what I mean. You guys fit together. Yeah. It just it was it belonged well, together. I think, I think it was. Um, I mean, absolutely uh, playing a lot of bass on his albums, but I think it was really a, a compositional thing. You know, like the songs that I was writing for Dave because I wrote a lot of songs for him, and um, I think. What I meant was I can absolutely imagine Dave's tone and Dave's phrasing mm-hmm. on this thing that I'm writing for him. You know, yeah. not that they sounded like stuff that he had done before, but I really got his sound in my head. Part of it's from being on the road with him and spending so much time with him. But uh, we really hit a groove, you know, where he would call me up and say, look, this is what I'm looking for for this next album, man. Send me some music, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know. Yeah. And I would uh, I had a soprano sax. And I would play the uh, the melodies on my demos on the soprano sax, and it sounded so bad that I'm sure Dave goes, "Well, I gotta play on this song just so I can fix this freaking melody that he, you know <laughs> that, that, that he's playing on the soprano sax." You know, so it was a psychological thing, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's hilarious. I'm gonna record this song just to make the melody sound better than you did, Mark. Right. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's hilarious that you recorded a demo sax part for David Sanborn. Oh, yeah, always, <laughs> always. It was, and it was hilarious. You know what I mean? But. Uh, he always said, oh, yeah, we're taking the facts off. I said, well, that's your part, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, Marcus, you know, as you, as we know, you were born in New York City, and, and but your dad, he was a musician, uh, a church organist, and a choir director. And, and uh, you know, so you got, you know, you grew up in church. And, you know, of course, a lot of our guests tell us that they got their start in music at church. And was this the same for you? I mean, did, did you also play in church? Is this where you kind of got some of your background? Yeah, most of the guys you talk to who say they they – you know, got their start in church. Uh-huh. They come from gospel church, right? right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and, the, and the organ, drums, all of that. Right. My dad and my family came from the Episcopal church. Mm-hmm. Okay. In fact, it was a black West Indian version of the Episcopal church. It was called the African Orthodox Episcopal Church. Interesting. It's a church that Marcus Garvey started. Gotcha. Uh, oh, okay. And my grandfather was a uh, an associate of Marcus Garvey's. Oh. He named his son, my dad, William Marcus Finn. That's how I got my name on William Marcus wow. Jr. What I'm trying to say is that there were no, there were no drums in the Episcopal church. <laughs> there was, there was no hand clapping. It was hymns. It was those Gregorian sounding chants, yeah. you know? Uh-huh. So imagine like a brownstone in Brooklyn, <laughs> but there's my grandfather. It's it's converted into a small church, and there's my grandfather in full regalia, almost like you know, like the Pope would wear. Yeah, you know yeah, what yeah. I mean. Sure. And he's there presiding over the congregation, which was, you know, my family and and aunts and uncles and and friends of aunts and uncles. You know, it's very kind of familial uh, congregation. Sure. And so. You know, I wasn't playing nothing. You know, I mean, my father was playing the organ. <laughs> yeah. It took me like five years before I could figure out how to turn the Hammond organ on. Kind of tricky, <laughs> you know. And I would sneak up after the service when everybody was down in the basement and try to turn the thing on. Yeah. But it was still a very musical, musical family. So after the church service, everybody would go down into the basement and just kind of um, enjoy each other's company for a few hours. And my aunts would sing, you know, for everybody. My dad had a cousin whose name was Winton Kelly, and Winton, he was a jazz pianist, and he played with Miles in the late 50s. He played on the Kind of Blue album, actually. He played wow. on uh, the second cut on Kind of Blue. He played on Someday My Prince Will Come, Miles' mm. and Someday My Prince Will Come. Yeah, he also yeah. 
played with Wes Montgomery, Dino Washington. He was an incredible jazz pianist. Yeah. So he would come through when he wasn't gigging, you know, and uh, play piano. My dad would play piano. So uh, I didn't realize I came from a musical family until I started talking to other people later on. Yeah, yeah. And asking them, what did you do on Sunday? You know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, they'd be like, well, I'll tell you, we weren't singing and playing instruments. You know? <laughs> so I got a very strong, fundamental music education from my dad. You know, he played piano in the house all the time. And, you know, he gave me a couple of formal lessons, but it's hard to give your kid music lessons. Oh, yeah. Because, um, you know, because things that just come naturally to you, you have to kind of go back and remember when you were that age, yeah. you know, uh, for example, my dad was teaching me three, four times, mm-hmm. right? And he said, so instead of four beats to a measure, Mark, it's going to be three beats. So I started playing. I go one, two, three, and one, two, three, and one, two, three. <laughs> I was playing four, four, but I was playing four, four, but I just put an and instead of four. So it sounded like I was in three. My dad just pulled his hair out. You know what I mean? You'll never make it in music, son. You'll never make it in yeah, music. Yeah, you know, you're just, you're just a little too funky, you know. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> so we didn't take formal lessons, but, you yeah. know, uh, he taught me all about harmony. And yeah. as I got older and I wanted to play the popular songs in the 70s, yeah. but didn't feel like... Um, you know, you buy the sheet music to like a Smokey Robinson song or a stylistic song. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, in piano music, you know, you got to read the left hand, the right hand. Mm-hmm. And after I'd figured it all out, I'd hate the way it sounded anyway, because it was some guy who just wrote an arrangement. You yeah. know what I mean? Right. So I said, Dad, I'm spending all this time reading this stuff note for note, and I don't like the way it sounds. It doesn't sound like the record. So he said, look, you see the guitar symbols up there giving you the chords? And I said, yeah. He said, well, let me show you what the chords are. And he showed me. Minor, major, major seventh, major sixth, you know, diminished, mm-hmm. augmented, all that stuff. Yeah. And I was on my way. That's all I needed, man. And yeah. I just took off, man, and um, got into composing and learned a lot about music off the bass, you know, just learned about harmony yeah. and all that stuff. And, and that's due to my dad. Yeah, very cool. Well, you know, you mentioned a second ago, or Eddie mentioned that, uh, you know, you were are you playing, mm-hmm. you, you put together a, a sax part. A demo part for David Sanborn, but what I have learned about you is that you also play the clarinet. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. My sax parts weren't that bad, but um, <laughs> didn't say they were bad. But, but I'm you saying... know, they they weren't that bad, but it was just <laughs> bad enough for Sanborn to cringe a little bit. You know, yeah. And uh, I um, wasn't really taking it seriously either. You know, until maybe mid '80s, I remember looking at um, some sheet music. Mm-hmm. And I saw, I felt my fingers moving to clarinet fingerings oh, because yeah. when I was 10, I started the clarinet and that was my primary instrument in okay. school all the way through college. Yeah. Uh, I played bass, started bass a few years later and played that outside of school. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But uh, of course, I put the clarinet down when I started working professionally as a bassist. Right. But whenever I saw treble clef music, I felt my fingers moving to the clarinet fingering. So I said to my wife one day, you know what? I shouldn't waste the clarinet stuff. Maybe uh, I can't hear the regular clarinet, but I could hear a bass clarinet. Maybe I'll get a bass clarinet. So I'm threatening. <laughs> threatening. And uh, one Christmas, my wife had a, a bass clarinet under the Christmas tree. You know? Wow. So, so I, um, you know, I put it together. It was a horrible-sounding Christmas morning. You, know? <laughs> you, don't just, you don't just pick up a bass clarinet and start wailing away. You know what I mean? But I really love the sound. 
I was working on a Miles record. I think it was Tutu. And I um, would play the sound uh, like if Miles played a solo and I felt like part of his solo was so brilliant, it was almost like its own composition. I would double what he played. I would learn it and double it like two octaves below. And Miles really dug it. And he said, man, that sounds good. So I was getting encouragement from him. So I kind of uh, stuck with it, and it became like a second voice for me. You know, I want to take you back a little bit. I remember your first album, um, which I still have. It was It's called Suddenly. It was right. released in, I believe, 83 on Warner. And, and uh, right. you know, that just being on Warner on the first album, did that, did that really allow you to have a lot of these great players and singers? Because Sanborn was playing, Luther was there. You, I mean, you had Harvey on drums and Ralph, even Ralph McDonald. I mean, um, and then you were singing. So how, tell us about the first album, because here's this bassist guy. How much singing were you doing? And did, did Warner know that you wanted to sing the leads on your first album? Well, Warner didn't have a lot to do with it. You know, I mean, yeah. everybody that you see on that album was yep. part of my family by that time. Uh-huh. Okay, you know so you mean? know these guys. Okay. Because uh, because I was working with David Sanborn. We had probably done two or three albums together. Mm-hmm. Working with Luther, we had had at least two or three albums under our belt. Yep. Uh, Ralph McDonald was one of the first guys who started calling me, putting my name out there in New York for studio work. Okay. You know, he, uh, he was a big producer at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did one date for him, and he said, hey, man, can you read? I said, yeah, I can read. He said, no, tell me the truth, because I'm going to start putting your name out there. And I said, no, I, I, you know, I'm a classical clarinetist. I can, I can read anything. Yeah. You know? So he started calling me or putting my name out. Next thing I knew, I was working like seven days a week. Wow. You know? So yeah. he was very close. I was very close to Ralph. So all those people you see were part of my family. Luther, his success was so huge that you know, I was like, yeah, you know what? Maybe I maybe I should sing a couple of songs and got into it and uh, the guys from Warner Brothers would come down and check it out and you know they encouraged me you know That's nice. I uh, I did that uh, I did one like I was saying earlier I did that album I did suddenly I did one album after that but then I decided hey you know what I need to stop for a minute and figure out more of who I am because when I hear that album I hear Luther I hear Sam Bourne. <laughs> I hear Ralph McDonald. I hear all of my influences. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and, it's, and it's crazy because one of the cuts on that Suddenly album got sampled by Jay-Z and Mary J. Blige. And and that was just the beginning. A bunch of people have sampled the song called yeah. Much Too Much. Exactly. So the album did well, and there's still people who call me about it and say they love it. But for me, I really wanted to figure out who I was. After I finished with Miles, because um, he passed in 91, Mm-hmm. I started recording an album called The Sun Don't Lie and yeah. felt like I was very much more clear after those experiences in the 80s. Mm-hmm. I was much more clear about who I was. Yeah. Well, you know, speaking of Miles, you know, um, you know, it goes without saying that he was one of the most influential musicians in the jazz world. And in the 80s, um, Eddie and I were sort of surprised to, to realize that you played on about seven albums. Mm-hmm. Uh, we knew you played with Miles, but we didn't know to what extent. But um, this was when he was really experimenting with, with technology at the time and, you know, new forms and styles of music. You know, significant albums like Tutu and uh, The Man with the Horn. And, and what was it like playing with him? And, and did you tour with him also? Yeah, I, um, Miles went into retirement for five years. Mm-hmm. And he came out of retirement in 81. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to put together a young band. And the first guy he called was Dave Liebman, who had played sax for him in the 70s. Okay. 
and Dave recommended a guy named Bill Evans, not the piano player, right. but a saxophonist. Oh, yeah. Bill yeah. Evans. Bill recommended me to Miles. You know, mm-hmm. Miles said, who's like the funky bass player in town? And Bill said, you should check out Marcus. So mm-hmm. I, I got a call from Miles. For me, it was kind of out of the blue. <laughs> but I got a call from him, you know, inviting me to a session in, in a couple of hours. And I was like, whoa, okay, I'll beat it. This is really Miles <laughs> Davis, you know. And uh, we ended up doing a couple of sessions, uh, uh, maybe four or five songs that ended up on that album, The Man with the Horn. Yeah, right. And right after the release of that album, which was a big deal, because like I said, Miles hit, hadn't played a note in at least five years. Wow. So um, I was in the comeback band, and it was Mike Stern on guitar and yeah. Al Foster on drums, Mino Sinaloo on percussion, and Bill Evans on the saxophone. Uh-huh. So we did like his first comeback gig at a club called Kicks mm-hmm. in Boston, and then we went to Lincoln Center in, in New York, and we were on our way. And I stayed in the band yeah. probably year and a half, two years. Mm-hmm. Um, then told Miles, I need to leave Miles because I need to, uh, I want to develop more as a producer and a composer. Uh, by that time, we had recorded The Man with the Horn, We Want Miles, Star People, and maybe one other. Yeah. Anyway, Miles gave me his blessing, and, uh, and I, I bounced. A couple of years later, Tommy LaPuma from Warner Brothers called me and says, guess what, we signed Miles. And I said, wow, man, congratulations, because Miles had been on Columbia for many, many right, years. Right. He said, you got any music? And I said, well, yeah, what's he want to do? You know, um, and he said, he wants to do something different. I'm going to send you something that George Duke wrote for him. And he sent me this track by George Duke where Miles, George Duke had Synclav, which was a big techno keyboard at the right, time, right, and yeah. uh, drum machines and and these what were futuristic sounds at the time. And I got excited. I was like, man, if Miles wants to go this way, mm-hmm. oh, I'm down. So I hung up the phone, you know, mm-hmm. after listening to the uh, the track. And uh, immediately the bass line of Tutu jumped in my head, you know. So yeah. I went home and did the demo for Tutu. I did the demo for two other pieces. Really? That's and, uh, cool. I'm in New York at the time. And I called Tommy and said, I got some, t- some music for you to hear. And Tommy goes, well, come out to L.A. and play it for me. This was in the 80s when they had budgets where you could just bring <laughs> a composer out yeah. from New York to L.A. just to hear his song. Yeah. You know what I mean? But Tommy and I, you know, I'd been writing all this music for David Sanborn. It wasn't like Tommy uh, didn't have expectations that it would yeah. be cool. But anyway, I uh, played the demos for Tommy, and he goes, wow, man, I think Miles is going to love this. Let's record it. And I said, okay, where's the band? And he said, just like David Sanborn's producer said, how did you do the, do the demo? And I said, I did the demo by myself. You know? He said, well, get all your instruments over here because <laughs> I want it to sound just like that. Look at that. I was, like, I was like, okay, you sure? This is a Miles Davis record. This isn't like, you know, an R&B record or something like that. He said, I think Miles is going to love it. So I called uh, Studio Instrument Rental, Studio Instrument Rental, SIR, yeah. and, got, and got, you know, some drums and a guitar and and keyboards the emulator keyboard was the one i was using a lot wow big and, time big time and uh started putting the track together you know and i i got a certain way down the line with these three tracks and miles came in and you know a little nervous for him to hear it he checked it out and uh you know as usual i had my little um fake lead instrument this time it wasn't a soprano sax this time <laughs> it was a trumpet sample okay. a miles davis trumpet sample that i used to play 
the lead melody uh, on Tutu for the demo, you know, and, and I'm playing all my best Miles Davis stuff uh, on this trumpet sample. And Miles goes, who's that on trumpet? Sounds like Nat Adderley. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, well, I was trying to sound like Miles, but Nat Adderley, that's not bad. You know, he's Cannonball's brother. He was a bad <laughs> trumpet player himself. So, okay, I'll take that. Yeah. Anyway, Miles said, okay, I'm going. Call me when you need trumpet. So I finished, you know, recording the tracks. I called Polino da Costa to come and play some percussion mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to add some more humanity to the tracks. You yeah. know? And uh, Miles had a keyboard player he thought would be really cool for some of it. His name was Adam Holtzman. And Adam came in and played. And uh, eventually Miles came in and, you know, I wrote out the music for him and I sat next to him with my soprano sax to play him the melodies that I would like him to play and point to the music. And we just worked together like that. And that ended up being our M.O. for the next three albums. Mm. So, mm-hmm. uh, we did Tutu. We did a movie score called Siesta. Yeah. And then we did another album called Amandla. And we basically worked that way. On Amandla, started replacing my instruments with, with real musicians because um, kind of felt like Tutu was a nice novelty, but, you know, we need to get some of the cats involved. So we had Kenny Garrett. We had Omar Hakim, Joe Sample. Foley, we had a bunch of guys who played on Amandla. You mentioned Joe Sample. Uh, Eddie and I, I think about a year before he passed, we had him as a guest on our show. And, and uh, it was, I think it, it ended up being one of our favorite interviews. We loved him anyway. But I think oh, yeah. he, was a little, he, he was a little shy about being on the show because he didn't know who we were, you know, yeah, and, and right. I don't think right. he knew what we, kind of questions we were going to ask. And uh, after we asked a couple questions, you could tell him, like, lighten up, and he yeah. got into it. Uh-huh. And we talked right. for over an hour, and when we were finished, he, he said – when we wrapped it up, he could, you know, that's all the time we have. He said, wait, that's it? Yeah. <laughs> he, goes, he goes, I got more to talk about. <laughs> yeah. That was one of the very interesting, rare interviews that uh, I've ever actually uh, heard with Joe Sample. And yeah. we did it. So you might check that out. It's He didn't uh, do too many. No, he didn't do too many. And that's just before he passed away. But anyway, hey, I want to bring out a very cool project. And and I mean cool because it's ultra cool. It's in 2015. You did your, your solo album for Blue Note. It's called Aphrodisia. And when I first heard this, I couldn't stop playing this album, honestly. It's, it's well-crafted. The theme alone is powerful. You know, in fact, it was inspired while you were the spokesman for UNESCO as an artist for, for peace. And, right. um, yeah. you know, and it was composed, of course, for the theme or for this project called the Slave Root Project. And, and, but you traveled around the world to get your inspiration. Tell us about this project because I don't know whether you actually recorded internationally or were you just getting your inspiration internationally. Talk to us about that. It's a cool project. I did a gig in Senegal, Africa with my band probably a couple of years earlier than 20, in 2013, a couple of years earlier than mm-hmm. I put out the Aphrodisia album. I visited Senegal, I had a gig, and the day before the gig, they invited us to take a little boat ride out to an island called Gore. And on this island, Gore, they have what they call a slave house. And, and I believe they had these kind of houses up and down the west coast of Africa. But in this slave house, this is where they used to stockpile the captive Africans before they sent them on the ship mm-hmm. across the Atlantic into okay. slavery. So okay. they had this tour guide who just kind of explained to you the whole situation and how it happened and mm-hmm. the detrimental effect it had on Africa and 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 all of that. Very, very moving. And, um, you know, I had heard about Gore. Uh, most African-Americans have heard about Gore, but 
hearing about it and being there, standing in the slave house, was a, a whole nother thing. So anyway, yeah. I wrote a song called Gore. Did it on the album called Renaissance, which came out in 2012. Yeah, great project. And then I was doing it on the road. And the song was getting a good response on the road. It features a bass clarinet primarily. But I, I didn't feel like the people were really connecting to it the way I wanted them to. So I started actually telling the whole story before we played the song. And then it really connected, not just to, to African-Americans, but to everybody whose ancestors have been through, like, you know, really, really difficult times. Anyway, I played it in Paris. And some people from UNESCO, from uh, UNESCO is like the cultural wing of the UN, uh, encouraging uh, communication, encouraging the arts, encouraging communication between nations, that sort of thing. And Herbie Hancock was already an artist for peace with mm -hmm. UNESCO. Mm -hmm. okay. He introduced me to these people a couple of years back, but they came to my show, and once they heard that story, they said, you have to be the spokesperson for our Slave Roots mm -hmm. project. And I said, what is that? They said, we just really want to raise awareness of people, particularly young people, right. about the history of slavery, because you'd be amazed how much people don't know uh, in this generation. So I said, oh, sure. But, you know, a lot of artists, you know, become spokesperson, and it's just kind of like, you know, they do it on the side. And I didn't want it to be that surfacey, so I decided to see if I could make my album have a connection to this whole thing. So I decided to follow the slave route with my album. Yeah. So uh, the, the slave route kind of began in Africa across the Atlantic into the Caribbean, sometimes South America, sometimes to North America. So what I did was I decided I wanted to work with some people from West Africa, from North Africa, from the Caribbean, from South America, and then finally from the U.S. Mm -hmm. So I'm in Poland doing a festival, and I run into this uh, African bass player from, from Senegal, and he introduces himself. He says, hey, man, uh, my name is Alun, but they call me the Senegalese Marcus. <laughs> so, okay, what well, do you play in my style? He goes, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm the, I'm Marcus in Africa. Okay, so I said, okay, nice to meet you, Marcus, African Marcus. I said, listen, because we got to be friends, because it was very funny the way he introduced himself. I said, I'm doing this album, and I'm getting ready to travel to all these different countries so that I can collaborate with musicians from all these different places. Mm -hmm. He said, why would you do that, man? I said, so I can get all these people from these different countries. He said, just go to Paris. Because we all live in Paris from all these different countries wow. yeah. in yeah. Africa, mm -hmm. you know, because of, you know, the colonialization and all that. So, uh, and now they're French citizens, you know. So I said, right. oh, so I flew that, flew to Paris, and Alun just hooked it up, man, where I had Gimba Kuyate from Mali. I had Sharif Sumano from, where's Sharif from? From Ivory Coast, you know, mm -hmm. and I had all these mm -hmm. uh, great musicians. Adama Bilodu from uh, Burkina Faso. They're all in the same room. Yeah. And we just vibed, man. And it wow. was just um, really, really beautiful. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I had written these songs. And I was, I said, Look, listen, man, if this thing don't sound authentic, let me know. Don't let me go out sounding like an American, <laughs> you know, trying exactly. to do African music. Yeah. And they yeah. said, no, man, this is, this is it, man. All you need is this. And they put a little flavor, like a little percussion thing on it or something. Mm -hmm. And uh, we really became brothers. I'm in touch with all of them, even to this day. Wow. And uh, then I went to uh, to Brazil and recorded with some 
South American musicians, recorded with some Caribbean musicians, some musicians from New Orleans, mm-hmm. and finally, you know, some musicians from Detroit. Basically, following the slave route, you know, with, with yeah. the music. So that was yeah. the story of Aphrodisia, and uh, played it all over the world, man. Like two years of touring that on that cool. album, man, and it was just uh, really beautiful. Especially when I ended up playing it in Africa. Yeah, yeah. Hey, you know, um, we want to talk about your 2018 solo release, but before that, we do want to spend a, a little bit here talking about your film scoring work over the years and. Uh, a few days ago, Eddie and I spent some time listening to your score for Disney's uh, sports drama film, Safety. Um, and it's it's based on the true story of, um, I don't know if I'm going to butcher his name, Ray McElrath Bay. No, that's right. A football player who he uh, battled a lot of family adversity and finally played football at Clemson. And uh, you wrote the film score, and it was, it was amazing. I mean, the score was excellent. And we really loved the theme track, Hold Us Together, sung by her. And man... What it, she's she's amazing. She's I good. Saw her just the uh, oh, yeah. you know just recently uh, do it at the Super Bowl, and, and I just <laughs> she's she's yeah, fantastic. She's Tell us about working on this particular score, this project. Well, um, the movie was directed by Reginald Hudlin, mm-hmm. and Reggie um, he had me do his first film out of film school back in like '89. It was called House Party, and it starred Kid and Play, yeah, two rappers, and. Uh, that was like my first, I'd done a film with Miles called Siesta, yeah. but that was more like doing an album and then mm. just placing the songs in different strategic places in the film. Right. But Reggie had me actually writing for the film. Mm-hmm. You know, So I did a House Party, Lenny White helped me out on that one. Then I did Eddie Murphy's Boomerang yep. for, for Reggie. And then, you know, I kind of, my name got out there, I was doing stuff with Keenan Ivy Wayans. I was doing Jamie Foxx movies. I was doing uh, LL Cool J movies. Yeah. So I got into it, and it was cool. It was kind of like my day job. Yeah. And uh, uh, maybe I'm probably 30 films down Jeez. down the road now. Yeah. But uh, Reggie uh, got called to do this film called Safety, and as you said, you know, it's about this guy who's trying to balance being a college athlete and take care of his 11-year-old brother while his mom is in rehab and he's okay. running into difficulties and challenges yeah so for the music you know what happens is that you sit with director in this case you sit with reggie and you look at the film and lots of times they just put arbitrary temporary music in the film mm-hmm. for you to look at so right. you can see at least the emotion that the director wants to get out of each scene and then he'll say i like this about my temporary music, but I don't like that. And, you know, you say, okay, I, I kind of got an idea of what you want. Mm-hmm. And then you hold yourself up in your, in your cave and you write the music. You know, right. once, you know, most movies have maybe are probably divided into five reels. So once you get a reel done, yeah. you call Reggie, say, come by, man, and check out reel one. And he'll make his comments on each cue that you do. You know, each cue lasts probably about 40 seconds. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you take your notes, you make your adjustments, move on to reel two. That's how it works problem was the COVID thing hit mm. after real one. Oh. Right. And so no more meetings with Reggie and how am I going to record an orchestra when nobody <laughs> can be in the same room together? <laughs> exactly. You know yeah. what I mean? So luckily, uh, since, you know, I got a history of making records where we overdub all the time. And, you know, particularly lately where you send, you send the file to some musician in Louisiana, ask him to add guitar. Right. Sure. Um, I moved that technique to 
the orchestral side. Oh, wow. Found some musicians, some cello players, some oboe players who happened to have home studios. Yeah. <laughs> and literally had everybody overdub wow. their parts. You know what I mean? And then, <laughs> oh and then spent, spent time here consolidating it, putting it all together and wow. mixing it so that it sounded unified. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so it was a lot of work, but it came out great. And uh, kind of like uh, women who have babies, you don't remember the pain. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, you just... I'm just enjoying the sound of the music, which uh, really came out cool. Mm-hmm. You know, the thing that I like about this track, and as me and Rick were listening, you know, because it's got a sort of that football theme. So mm-hmm. my question is, you know, there's there's such an inflection and injection of that heavy drumline cadence, you know, mm-hmm. on the tracks that's always, it's sort of behind everything a little bit with that real snappy. Um, mm-hmm. My question is this, did you ever march in high school band? Never marched in high school band, but my drummer, uh, my current drummer, Alex Bailey, did. He actually was considering majoring in uh, uh, going to Berkeley after he came out of high school, Berkeley College of Music, or going to drumline school. Wow. Right? So I called him up. I said, hey, man, I'm doing this movie score, and uh, I'm going to put some drumline stuff as the undercurrent for it. But I want to be authentic, so... uh, you got your studio? He said, I got you. So I sent him tracks, and he overdubbed all the drumline stuff, man. Wow. And he did such an incredible job. Yeah. Well, you he, know. he did a fine job because it, it is really authentic. You know, Rick, we were talking to a, a guest um, just yesterday, last night, Richard Elliott, uh, sax player, and and uh, Rick was just telling him that, hey, that we he was really into DCI and, and right. drum corps and that kind of thing. And, and when we heard this, we thought, Oh my yeah. God, Marcus knows drumline and DCI stuff. You know, whoa. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I love drumline and listen to it all the time. But you know, it gets deep because the tuning of the drums yeah. is really important. Oh yeah. And the drums, like a snare drum, drumline snare drum sounds completely different. It's tight from a snare drum that you use in hip hop or R and B. Yes. You know, it's potato chip, snappy. You know exactly. what I mean? And they got tenor, tenor tom toms and yep. bass tom toms. So. Yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty incredible. Yeah, it is neat. You know, um, I want to talk to you a little bit about Late Black in 2018. That was your last solo album that you recorded on Blue Note, and uh, it was nominated for a Grammy. So congratulations for that nomination, man. Um, oh, thank you. Um, all I can say is that I, I didn't really not know what you know quite what to expect, but it wasn't really this. <laughs> I love everything about this album and um cuz you th- man you really twist some things especially like the track of Kesara Sara uh and bringing in Sila Sue to to sing on this track and and it's sort of unbalanced balanced and just the way you come at the material it's so unorthodox. I mean, honestly, I think Doris Day would have never expected this, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I got I to gotta, I gotta tell you um, that I'm not the crazy one. Sly is the crazy one. Yeah? Because Sly did a version of Que Sera Sera in the 70s. Really? Which was my inspiration for this. And uh-huh. he's the one who just turned it into church. You know what I mean? And, yeah. Okay. And it was crazy because it was a rumor that Sly was dating Doris Day at the time. So <laughs> crazy, you know what I mean? <laughs> Which Sly says is uh, is completely untrue, but you can't you can't believe Sly. So <laughs> anyway, uh, I called Cela Sue, who's this Belgian singer who has this incredible voice. Um, we had done some gigs together in Europe, and I said I'd like you to sing on um, on something for me. And you're too young to 
to know this version of K Sera Sera, but it's by Sly. She said, I was just listening to that last week. <laughs> you know what I mean? So uh, it was pretty natural the way it flowed. Yeah, well, you you had brought in some really great artists, Trombone Shorty, um, you know, our good friend and past guest for Inside Music Cast, Kirk Whalen, Patches Stewart, Take Six, Jonathan Butler. I mean, you you really laid it on thick, man, and uh, congratulate you because that's a pretty brave approach to to music, man. It really is. Uh, thank you, thank yeah. you. I mean, it didn't occur to me that it's brave, but uh, oh, it is. It, it felt pretty natural to me, you know. You know, I always consider brave music the music that you just can't expect. You put, you know, you you, you put the the track on, and and all of a sudden something is so different about this, or it's special that it it makes you right. like, hmm, this is. Right. I, I can chew on this a little bit, but it doesn't sound like anything, and this one doesn't. It's right. uh, truly right. original. So congratulations. Oh, thank you. Hey, Marcus, uh, before we wrap things up, I just wanted to ask you, um, you know, what, what are you working on now? Um, I mean, I, kn- I know COVID's probably turned everything upside down for you and all the other artists we've talked to, and we've had to adjust and, and make, you know, kind of a new route for, or artists have had to make a new route for themselves. What's happening right now? What's, what does the rest of 2021 look like for you? Well, let's see. I, I do a, a weekly radio show on Sirius XM, right. Channel 67, yep. called Miller Time, of course. And uh, <laughs> it comes on like 6 o'clock on the, on, in the East Coast okay. on Sunday. Okay. So um, really enjoying doing that. Um, there's some more movies, some more Reggie Hudlin stuff that's coming down the road. Great. You know? um, and then Reggie and I also do this uh, program at the Hollywood Bowl. We've done three. We're working on the fourth one. It's called Black Movie Soundtrack. Okay. And Black Movie Soundtrack is um, a celebration of the music from black films. Okay. And so what we have at the Hollywood Bowl, which is a beautiful venue here in L.A., we have, I put together a band of all-star guys. I'm talking Paul Jackson Jr. and Chris Bowers and and John Beasley. Mm. Uh, Vince Mendoza conducts Hollywood, the, the Hollywood Bowl. Symphony Orchestra, and then we have all these great artists come and sing a song from the black movie canon. So we we do stuff from Lena Horne, uh, Stormy Monday, through Ray Charles in the Heat of the Night, through Shaft and Superfly, through Waiting to Exhale, through Black Panther. You know what I mean? We do the whole history, and we show clips from the movies on the big screen, and people just have an incredible time and uh you know sold out and hollywood bowl is massive and it's, it's oh, yeah. sold out it's an incredible experience so mm-hmm. we're hoping that things open up by september because that's when we're scheduled to do that you know very cool. so uh hope to do the fourth installment of that and uh otherwise just getting writing some more music that hopefully will uh, surprise you guys again that's beautiful well, let's let's hope there's some live performances of some kind this year. We're all, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're all we're all yeah. yearning for it. You know, we all want it. So <laughs> I, I I saw yeah. this one meme of this one uh, picture of this one this one kid. You know, he's standing on the corner. You know, instead of begging for food or will work for food, <laughs> all he says in his sign is, "All I want to go is to a concert." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, all. Yeah, you know, it's, it's beautiful to to see how much people miss that experience. Yeah, you know what I mean. We've done virtual things, which are cool. But the uh, the experience of standing shoulder to shoulder and right. and experiencing everything in the same room with that energy, it's hard to replicate that. And uh, it's great that people are, are letting us know, hey, man, we miss you guys. We can't yeah. wait to get you guys back on stage. That's very cool. Absolutely. You don't know what you got till it's gone, you, you know? Exactly. <laughs> 
Exactly. Yeah. So, exactly. well, Marcus, thank you so much for your time. This has been a fun chat. We probably, you know, your 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 career has been so expansive. We could have probably spent another hour with you, but maybe oh, we can no. do this again sometime. All right, sounds good. That'd be great. All right, thanks so much. This is great. Thank you very much. And uh, again, thank you uh, to Brenda for yeah, thanks, for helping Brenda. us out. All right. I'll pass it on. Absolutely. All right. You take care now. Bye bye. All right. Take care. Bye bye. Bye. Special thanks to Marcus Miller for joining us on this episode of Inside MusicCast. We also want to thank our Inside MusicCast correspondents for their support and dedication, including Brian Pearson in Chicago, Kim Riley in South Florida, Scott Gross in Tampa, Mikhail Ingstrom in Stockholm, Scott Sheriff in Nashville, Don Brightup in Los Angeles, Loretta Sassaman in Seattle, Yinka Oyelese in New Jersey, and Arnaud Legere in Paris. Now you can show your support for Inside MusicCast by making a donation at InsideMusicCast.com. Your donation will help us to continue producing future episodes of Inside MusicCast and keep Inside MusicCast radio streaming 24-7. You can also receive special Inside MusicCast merch, such as t-shirts, masks, stickers, and coasters for your support at various levels. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thank you for your support of Inside MusicCast.